And now, live on tape from Speed Shop Sound Studios in North Hollywood, California, it's The Rodcast. Brought to you by your friends at the American Hot Rod Foundation. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the host of The Rodcast, David Steele. We are talking, can you believe it, man, oh man, back to back in quick succession, Larry Babb, I, I can't believe it, great, great introduction as always, but I think I picked up a little, just a hint of surprise in your voice, uh, Larry Babb, just a, maybe just a little taken aback, a little taken aback at these uh, one week apart from one another episodes of the Rodcast. That's right, folks. Right back at you with another great episode brought to you by the American Hot Rod Foundation. And call it uh, making up for lost time. Call it a bit of a thank you for all of the great comments that we've been getting on last week's episode, part one, with Steve Gibbs. Or feel free to just say, you know, it's about damn time because... It's all good by me. It's all good by us. And the truth is, uh, it's just such a joy to be bringing you part two of our talk with Steve Gibbs. Not only was getting to speak with Steve such a pleasure, but putting these episodes together, going back over everything we got to talk about has has really been a pleasure as well. Uh, just what a guy and what a story and once again, we will waste no time getting right back into it here. Uh, if you if you have a curiosity about the origins of such hot rodding and drag racing staples as, oh, I don't know, the Wally Parks Museum or its event counterpart, the NHRA Hot Rod Reunions, uh, well, you've tuned into the right show today. Not only will Steve walk you through his early years as competition director of the NHRA and the the truly wild ride that was the explosion of big time drag racing during the 1970s but he'll also take you through the backstory the backstory on how the great museum of drag racing came to be uh for starters but also how those first big-time nostalgia drag racing events came to be the team that put them together and how they were received uh, it, it really is you know it's something that's on our calendar every year we almost take it for granted um, but uh, when you think about a time when those things didn't exist and those great cars so many of those great cars were just languishing and either in other museums or in people's garages. The fact that these things have have all been brought back to life, that that entire uh, aesthetic and scene was brought back to life, thanks to guys uh, like Steve Gibbs and the people that he got to assemble to put that all together. For people who are fans of the history of all this and, and who want to see those cars run again, and for the 
for the people like me who weren't quite born soon enough to have caught it. Um, it's just a great, great thing. And, uh, and uh, again, uh, just another thing to thank Steve Gibbs for. So anyway, without further ado, it's all here. It's all queued up. So sit back, buckle up, and settle in as we bring you part two of our talk with the legendary Steve Gibbs. So we were talking about 1959, and you mentioned going to Bonneville. And you, you thought you were going to get away with just saying that in passing. Well, um, I mean... So tell me about that trip. I don't know, 59 seemed like a big year because of, uh, you know, the March meet, which we didn't call it the March meet back then. It was the U.S. Fuel and Gas Championships. But anyway, we became aware that Mickey Thompson was going to run that four-engine Challenger car at Bonneville for the first time. So my, my two buddies, a fellow named Mike Doty, who wound up being best man at our wedding, and another fellow named Jim Caslin, who worked for me years on the safety safari, uh, we loaded up my orange 50 Ford and a tent and uh, all the paraphernalia and we headed to Wendover, Utah, and uh, we were just out there watching Mickey run that car for the first time. It was a pretty big adventure for 19-year-old kids. Yeah, that's a heck of a long drive. It is a long, and no, no interstates back then. I mean, we're, uh, you know, two-lane highways out through uh, the interior of Nevada. You know, we, um, but God, we had a great time. The Ford behaved there and back. No, <laughs> <laughs> I remember the exhaust system pretty well fell off of it while we were out there on the salt. So we had, in essence, open exhaust. Uh, for the most part, coming home. And when we were coming home, my buddy was driving. <clears throat> we were outside of Barstow, and the damn hood flew open at about 70 miles an hour. And I'm in the back seat. I was trying to sleep. And all the next thing I know, there's just horrible noise, you know, and the hood went up and it folded over and caved in the roof of the car. And I mean, it really messed things up. So we, <laughs> we got wrenches out and unbolted the hood and left it alongside the road somewhere out in Barstow. Every time I go by there now, I look, you know, it's obviously this is 60 years ago. I don't think it's still there, but no, it, the poor old Ford paid the price for that trip. And um, it, it kind of went downhill from there. And the last I saw of it, it went away on the hook. And I think I got $25 for it. A local junkyard in Baldwin Park. But uh, My God, your wife must have thought when you pulled in the driveway, no hood, well, we and the roof we, is caved in. We weren't married yet. Oh, okay. We, that was the year before. <laughs> but, um, you know, she always tolerated all that stuff pretty good. I, but it, it, it did screw up the old car pretty bad. Man, I bet. And, um, uh, what was that like pulling into Wendover and seeing the vastness of the salt flats and all that for the first time? That had to be... It, Obviously, the first time on assault has got to be an experience for anybody because there's no place else like it. And um, we wound up getting some rain. Um, so we had to, we set a tent up somewhere outside the <clears throat> entryway into the salt flats there. And I think we were on assault for a couple, three days and it rained and we went into Salt Lake City killing some time. And so that was kind of an experience for us to, to do that. And we set up our camp alongside the Great Salt Lake, and we went swimming in the Great Salt Lake and found out 
all the stories about how you can't sink in there and got ourselves muddy and ugly and dirty. I mean, it's a nasty place, you know. That uh, um, It was a real adventure. Then back to the salt and watch. Uh, and I don't think Mickey ran real well that first year, but uh, it was a great experience. I mean, I remember seeing Craig Breedlove was out there with a 34 <clears throat> coupe that he was racing back then. And That's right, yeah. Bob yeah. Brissett, I uh, remember him in, in a belly tank and... I think Ermia Merso was out there with some cars and some big name guys that were, you know, the, later on I got to kind of know. I mean, we were pretty ignorant probably of a lot of that also because uh, we hung around the drag races. So it was a whole new world to us to go up there and just being on the salt all that time, um, you know, quite an experience. But uh, I'm, I'm glad we did it. I try to go back almost every year now and spend a day or two anyway. Mm. Yeah, it's a, it's no place like it on earth. No, yeah. I tell a lot of friends if you're gonna if you're a gearhead, you you need to go to Bonneville once and you need to go to the Reno Air Races, you know, because it's just a totally unique experience and uh, and I'm not sure how long both of them are going to be around, you know. Yeah, I think because there's issues there. Did you did you know Mickey Thompson at all at that time? Mm -hmm. in I 1959? can't say I really knew him. Um, I never really had any dealings with him, but I worked at a supermarket in El Monte, California, which is a little town right next to Baldwin Park. <clears throat> and that's where Mickey lived at that time. And occasionally he would come in the market and I'd say hi to him. And I, a couple of times I went down to the shop in El Monte where the car was being built. There was a body guy named Don Borth that did the body work on that car. And if I had time to spare, I might go down to see how that was. And Mickey's wife would come in this little market. So there was a casual awareness of each other, but I, I can't claim to really have ever known Mickey, you know. I got to know Danny very well, which is a great relationship. But uh, um, I've heard a lot of stories about Mickey, and I kind of wish I'd have got to know him better. But uh, he had pretty well gotten out of doing drag race promotion at the time I was getting in, he had gone past that and got involved in his stadium events. And I mean, he was involved in obviously a lot of things, but um, I never really got to know him real well. Mm. Well, so getting back to your career and uh, I'm, I'm curious to know, like, do you have memories of how the NHRA was seen by the racers before you went to work for the NHRA and how Wally was kind of perceived in the, in the world of drag racing? Well, the fuel ban did a lot, I think, to, of course, NHRA has always been big brother, you know, and I think there's always been some resentment to any, whoever's, you know, trying to lead the pack. And so Wally took a lot of flack and some of it probably deserved Probably a lot of it not deserved. The whole fuel ban thing, he, he told me once that's one of the biggest mistakes he ever made, letting other people talk him into it. And C.J. Hart, of all people, had a big role, you know, because even back then, people were talking about, it's getting too dangerous, it's getting too expensive. And some of the local track operators agreed to do away with Nitro. And Wally went along with the deal, even though there was still some NHRA tracks around the country that ran nitromethane, but uh, 
I think he always regretted that decision because I think it put him in <clears throat> the bad guy role in a lot of people's minds. And anything the association did that a racer didn't agree with, well, that reflected on Parks, you know. Um, personally, I had a great relationship with Wally and I hold him in real high esteem. Um, I think he had a good group of guys that worked for NHRA at the time who had a background in the sport and he let them do their jobs. And, uh, and I valued that. He always let me do my job. He very, very seldom would even question a decision that I made or how I did things. And he was that way with a lot of, a lot of his people. The poor guy that was the editor of National Dragster had the worst job as far as, because while he was an old editor, he was editor of Hot Rod Magazine when he started all this stuff, you know, and it had a lot to do with car clubs and getting racing off the street with the safety safari. And, but Wally was comfortable being an editor. He could get that magazine in National Dragster and get his red pen. And boy, he'd love to sit <laughs> and mark up all the stuff. That he, and the, whoever the editor of the paper was, it was Bill Holland or Jim Edmonds. I mean, you could never keep up with Parks. I mean, he one day had too much copy, not enough photographs. Not enough photographs, too much copy, or too much this. And those poor guys, I'm off running the races and I didn't, I really didn't have to, <laughs> Parks didn't give me too much trouble, but um, it was, uh, I enjoyed working for the man and, uh, and like I say, um, I, I think there's, you can find people that love him, you can find people that hate him and, um, and they probably all have their reasons. But uh, the thing about him, I, I, I don't think he was ever motivated by just money. I mean, he lived well, he had a nice home, drove a nice car, but I'll guarantee you he didn't make the kind of money that current management people have taken out of that company. And um, it was one time they tried to give him a raise and he even refused it, you know, because things were kind of tight. He paid for the operation. <laughs> Those the early years, I mean, the money he made working at Peterson was what supported NHRA. I mean, the money he made over there would go right into keeping the organization running. There was some plenty lean years back in the early 60s. It was only after the really good-sized races really started to take off that the money actually started to materialize. And um, <clears throat> Parks, uh, he bankrolled a lot of it out of his own, you know, pocket for quite a few years. Wow. Started hiring full-time people and... Um, but um, it, was, um, it was a good experience. I put in, you know, basically 48 years with them from the time I actually signed on with NHRA in 69 till the time I had to walk away, you know, in 2017. Do you remember meeting him? I'm not sure I remember the exact time and place I met him. Um, when I took over as a manager of the racetrack at Irvindale, Irvindale opened up as an AHRA track, and that, there was some really political drag racing wars going on at that time. You know, AHRA was pretty strong, and uh, Jim Tice, uh, no relation to the other Tices I just talked about. I mean, he had a pretty good program going, and it worked, seemed well in the middle of the country, but when Irwindale opened up, <clears throat> 
you had some of the other NHRA tracks were established, and I think they, to be different, they went with AHRA. And they had an event out there called the AHRA Winter Nationals in 1966, which is a week, I think a week after the Pomona Winter Nationals. It was a disaster, an absolutely organized disaster. And Harry Snyder, the founder of In-N-Out, didn't like disasters. So when that was over, he made it known, HRE, you're out of here. Sign up with NHRA the next week. So Irwindale became an NHRA track. <clears throat> and when I, it was not too long after that that I actually was hired full-time and not long after that as the manager of, of Irwindale. And of course, NHRA, their office is in Hollywood. And so I probably went in one day and met Wally at the office and we and we'd had a decent relationship. I wouldn't, I can't say it was close. I got to know more. Well, and back then the division directors played an important role with NHRA and Bernie Partridge was our guy, you know. So I dealt with him more than anybody, but there was a fellow named Jack Hart who was the executive vice president of NHRA and he actually had more to do with NHRA than Wally did. Uh, Wally continued to work at Peterson quite a while while well, NHRA was getting established, and Jack Hart had a lot to do with that. And so I had a close relationship with Jack. And um, But, you know, over a period of time, we got to know each other, and, and uh, Parks offered me a job in 69 um, when I was working part-time for him at the Indy Nationals. Of course, I, I jumped on it, but it was <laughs> kind of a weird deal. They had just gotten rid of a fellow named Don Rackman as their advertising guy. And that's what I got hired at. I was Don Rackman's replacement as the ad director for National Director, which I'm not a salesman. I, I mean, I, I told Parks, I don't know, you know, I'm, I'm good at running races. I can organize this stuff. Well, we got to have somebody. We need somebody now, and we think you can do it. I said, well, I was looking for a job. And um, so that's how it all happened. And about six months later, Jack Hart, called me on one day, he says, I want you to come over here and work with me on doing the races. And there weren't that many races at that time. I think we only had four or five national events. And um, they hired Bob Vandergriff as the advertising director for National Dragster. He did that a long time. But um, I kind of got in the deal, <laughs> you know, and I, I was never comfortable in that role. I mean, I did okay. I, did, I had a list of clients to call, and a lot of it was kind of automatic, but uh, um, I'm not sure I would have survived if I had to hang in there. I probably, probably made more money. The ad guys always did pretty good on commissions, but uh, Vandergriff did real well. He wound up <laughs> buying headman headers and a bunch of other different businesses, you know, but uh, I just always loved the racing part of it. I loved the organization, being around the racing um, whatever I could do to make these events work. So. Well, and it sounds like it was kind of a nice natural uh, progression from yeah. Irwindale to the NHRA. Uh, you you it, said well, you did it, some part-time work for Wally between... It, it, the way it worked was I was at Irwindale for a couple of years, and then I was offered a job managing Fremont. Pretty decent money. I mean, I was making a decent living at Irwindale, and um, I liked it out there, and we lived in nearby, but a fellow named Ron Miller was running Fremont, and he basically offered me 
almost double the money I was making at Irwindale to go run Fremont. So I, you got a family. You got, by that time, I had a couple of kids. Um, <clears throat> you're looking to improve yourself. So a, a great relationship with Irwindale. I mean, I left on good terms, but I had to do the Fremont thing. Well, that didn't really work out that well. And that's kind of a long story, but it was probably good in the overall scheme of things that I went through that experience at Fremont. But when Fremont basically got shut down, um, and I was kind of freelancing for a while in 1968, in um, early 69, well, excuse me, it was, um, yeah, 68 to 69, um, and I was doing some of the NHRA races. I worked on the safety truck, uh, it, you know, the Spring Nationals in Dallas, Texas. Uh, so you were traveling the country. A, a for little them. bit, and yeah. we had a, a project in Corpus Christi, Texas. A guy was building a racetrack down there. That <clears throat> I spent the summer in Corpus Christi helping this guy build the track. And I went to the Nationals in '69 to work on the emergency truck. I did that quite a bit for Jack Hart. Um, that's when Wally approached me, to, you know, and we developed a good relationship. And I, of course, I jumped on it because I needed a full-time job. I was, I was getting by. I could have probably continued to freelance and done things, but uh, it, it came about at the right time. And um, fortunately, we had not sold our house. We were living in West Covina then uh, when we went to Fremont, and we just kind of undid everything, came back to the San Gabriel Valley, and. Worked for uh, NHRA for quite a few years at the little office on First Street was where we first worked, and then we moved over to North Hollywood not long after that. And uh, how many people were on staff when you joined? When I joined NHRA, there were probably six people over National Dragster, and maybe ten people NHRA proper. There were two little buildings side by side, um, in an old part of town. I mean. Uh, the accounting department was one guy. It was the circulation department was one girl. The marketing department was one gal. Uh, the media department was one guy, Bob Russo. Uh, tech department was one guy, Farmer Dismuke. I mean, literally every department in there was one person, you know? So I, at the very most, in the headquarters there, between National Dragster and NHRA, 15, 16 people. And that was pretty good. I mean, it was growing. And um, Boy, I'd say, I, it seems like being dropped down in the middle of that in 1969, because yeah. I think of the early 70s as when it just really... Well, when it really, in the whole sport was really growing then, too. And you look at, if you look at the photographs of the races at Pomona in the mid-60s, I mean, those grandstands are packed. Even when they were only running top gas, even without the fuel cars out there, it was just that there was that much activity back then and enough fans that <clears throat> I think all these local tracks had their followings. And you know, racing out here was year round. I mean, it never stopped. There was no seasons of 52 weeks a year. So you had thousands of people that were either going to whatever track. And when NHRA started the Winter Nationals at Pomona, I mean, you had a huge following ready to go. I mean, it was pretty easy to promote those races. And um, I think when they started getting those big crowds, you know, 20, 25, 30,000 honest crowds, you know, 
the crowd counts in racing get really elevated. I mean, people look down there and if they see 500 people in the grandstands, well, the place is packed, you know, it's wall to wall. <clears throat> and the numbers got really skewed a lot. But um, anytime you have more than 15,000 people at a drag race, you've got a big crowd. The biggest single crowd I ever had at Irwindale was 13,000 people. And I mean, it swamped the place. The neighborhood cars were parked for miles getting in the place. So, yeah. and um, we get kind of off the track here, but those numbers work against you sometime when people try to project the amount of money that's being made. All of a sudden you read a press figure that shows 100,000 people are out there <clears throat> trying to impress everybody. When you start extending that money-wise, you get really off track as far as what the real, the real deal is. Mm -hmm. But um, anyway, it, um, but that was the, I'd say the golden era as far as I'm concerned would have been the 1960s. I think that's when you had some purpose-built racetracks that were basically designed, you know, for racing. Uh, the Dallas International Track, when it was built, was leaps and bounds. Uh, I mean, it was purpose-built just for a drag racing event. Um, Urbandale was to, to a degree, but it was still pretty rough around here. Orange County was a big step up here in California. That place, when it was designed, I mean, it was a big step up. So you could see the, the professionalism coming into the sport, not only with cars, uh, but the facilities as well. And... Um, it, um, but, but the 60s were just, I mean, I think it, there's just something about those cars in that time frame, and it had not gotten so expensive that it was out of reach of guys that were willing to make whatever sacrifice to get involved. I mean, it was, it was escalating, and you could see the money creeping in. I mean, when I ran Irwindale, when Don Schumacher showed up the first time out there, I said, boy, the handwriting's on the wall here. I mean, this guy comes in and he goes to town, he buys whatever he needs. I mean, the best car, the best motor, the best trailer. I mean, it's just all a matter of money. And I can, I said, I, I know where this is headed. And um, sure enough, it has, you know, and it's just only gone from there. But um, as long as you got a few guys that can play that game, and um, Unfortunately, there's a lot of guys that can't play the game and they get left behind. And that's, uh, that was a shame to see uh, a lot of guys that just couldn't keep up because I look on guys like Warren and Coburn. I mean, here you got two working class guys, you know, that, boy, they could race anywhere, anytime and be competitive. And um, slowly but surely that, that's gone away. You've got a few guys out there that struggle with it these days they're not really there to win, race to win. They're, they're doing what they love. I, I applaud them for that. But they're probably sacrificing stuff they don't have to sacrifice to play that game. And um, I worry about some people I know personally that maybe getting in over their head, you know, that uh, marriages or this or that suffer. I mean, a lot of marriages suffered uh, the way guys approached it. Some people got obsessed with this thing to the point that... Uh, almost grown their lives, you know? Yeah, you, you hear, and this may be one of those things that not a lot of people want to talk about, but you, you hear stories, rumor, conjecture about, especially in the 70s when the, the big money, the sponsorship, it's, it's now on, it's televised. 
You know, I mean, that's, that's how I was exposed to it, big time drag racing as a, as a kid. I was the right age. You know, ABC's Wide World of Sports, you had all this stuff going on and, and here's, you know, these great camera shots of these top fuel dragsters, you know, making passes and uh, it was all super exciting. But little did I know that there, it had been this great little cottage sport right. and a small community. And when I first saw it with my own eyes anyway, on a big scale, it was big sponsorship and big money and rear engine dragsters and wings and, and all of it was happening. And, uh, and then fast forward to talking to guys who were involved in it. And it seems like guys got, they got so ahead of themselves trying to keep up with that machine that was taken off and was out of control yeah. that they got into a lot of trouble trying to finance it and do it maybe, maybe some, Nefarious things were, well, I think all know, of us because were. it's an addiction yeah. and you can't stop. And I think we all wanted the sport to be bigger and better, you know, for whatever involvement we had. And uh, I think that's just a natural thing. But sometimes it's the old saying, you better be careful what you wish for because you might get it. And I think when <clears throat> some of the things that happened is racing used to be more regionalized. And NHRA had some national events, but the guys could race pretty well locally. And once in a while, you know, a lot of guys would go to Indy. They might go to whatever national event might be close. But when we started the tour, and the, at first it wasn't too bad because there might have been only, I'm thinking maybe seven or eight races on the tour. The guys could go out and match race. They could do other things and then maybe stop in and run that national event. That was pretty good. But then all of a sudden you got these racetracks out there that wanted to be part of the tour. So you keep adding national events. Well, it's worked its way up now. It's 24 races on the tour. Well, I mean, that's the whole season. You, you, there's no time anymore to go match race or make money doing anything else. And, and the cost obviously is just astronomical. Just, just the logistics of following the tour, much less keeping up with the mechanical end of things and it just drove the price out of sight. You know, you look back on it, it would have been better to keep the tour a little smaller and manageable and, and save some of these fringe uh, events that might have kept guys in the sport longer. Some of it's just evolution that I'm not sure anybody has any control over. It's just got its own sure. life, you know? Yeah. And um, some of it we managed well, some of it we probably mismanaged. Um, but um, it, 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 it's gone over center. I mean, uh, when you have to start shortening the racetrack, you have to start putting automatic controls on. Um, I mean, we're, we're compromising what the sport should be just to, to somehow keep doing it. You know, these mm -hmm. racetracks are not getting any longer. Um, it's, um, it's frustrating, you know, and then, I'm not sure where it's all headed. Hmm. Well, talk to me about the 1970s and working for the NHRA and being around big time drag racing because I do feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I do feel like that's when it all started. That's when it all, again, the money, the sponsorship, the you've got guys who are kind of becoming national personalities. Right. Right. They've got merchandising. Mm -hmm. 
You know, I was one of those kids building all the model kits. You know, I knew who all these guys were because well, of that. It, it was a big deal back then. It, 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 uh, and it goes back into the 60s too, but you had the factories involved a lot too. I mean, as far as racing full-bodied cars, so you had a lot of Detroit involvement in drag racing. So I think drag racing took on a bigger role in American motorsports, but I guess the advent of television between the, you know, wide world of sports and some of the Diamond P shows, it started showing up and more exposure and um, uh, more acceptance of the sport. I think he started having names that became almost household words, you know, Big Daddy and the Snake and the Mongoose. Yep. And so yep. all that played into the sport becoming more established and much more professional. And um, so I'd say that was the 70s. I, I think when I say the golden age, I'm probably looking at it from a little different angle in the 60s. It has the more, the kind of cars we had and the, maybe the mentality of the racing back then. But the 70s would have been how things really, really exploded. Yeah. And, uh, and their tracks were being built. There was some nice racetracks that showed up in that time frame. And um, it just continued to escalate. And slowly but surely, I think, as the tour got bigger, um, I mean, it was no big deal to have a 32-car top fuel show hmm. at one time. I mean, you might have 32 cars qualified and another 20 or 30 that didn't make the program. Mm -hmm. And um, but by those days are long gone right now. It's just to fill up a 16 car field is uh, an accomplishment. But um, do you feel like, do, do you remember being in the middle of it in the 1970s and, oh, feel, and feeling like what the hell's going on? Well, this, this thing is going crazy and just I trying do, to keep but up at with the time, it. At the time, Things are expanding, so you, you feel like you're part of something that's successful. I'm not sure we were yeah. wise enough to look that far down the horizon to see maybe this thing, there might be a dead end to it, or this is going to maybe go the wrong direction at some point. I mean, tracks were being built, races were being added, um, rules and regulations were getting better. So, I mean, it was a time of seemingly getting better. And, but I do think there were some issues down the road that we should have mm -hmm. looked at that uh, maybe prevented some things. Couple is, NHRA is in a no-win situation when it comes to making rules for racing because even today you still get guys who cannot afford to race at all. They'll still badmouth NHRA because, I mean, they're anti-progress, they're anti-ingenuity, they're anti-this, they won't let you do this. On the other hand, you'll get guys, you guys should have done something. You shouldn't have let that happen, okay? So you're, you're caught in the crossfire of trying to accommodate some development, but at the same time, put the brakes on. I mean, we went through that thing with the McGee engine. These guys developed a beautiful engine on this McGee, I think it was a, that a four cam engine, I think, overhead, beautiful engine. But if that thing would have worked, everybody, who's got a, well, you know, a lot of cars then have got a stockpile of, you know, Keith Blacks and Mylodons and, and it's all gonna be obsolete because this is where we're gonna have to go. So NHRA basically said no to the McGee. Well, they took a lot of crap off that. I mean, you guys, you're not letting them, again, progress. Well, a lot of it's guys racing on somebody else's money and you get a lot of that, guys. They're, they're critics of things. 
but it's it's like guys on the internet. You get behind that keyboard, you get to be ten foot tall. You know? Yeah. And you get yeah. a lot of that. Guys are bitching about stuff that really doesn't even apply to them, other than just theory. And um, but that was always a difficult part of the job is to try to walk that line between some new stuff because some new stuff could translate into safety. Better parts, maybe in the long run, maybe cheaper. Maybe there's a better part that actually saved you some money. I mean, it was pretty obvious that 392 Chrysler blocks were gonna run out at some point. So, you know, Donovan had to come up with something or black with a, some of that stuff had to happen to keep it going. But um, it, the 70s was a, yeah, it was a great time. And that's when I really got involved um, as the, the competition director for NHRA it was in the early 70s. And so I was knee deep in this stuff. I mean, all the meetings, I mean, I was never a tech guy. We, we relied on our guys that knew about that stuff. And we had a good team of guys working, I think, at that time. And like I said earlier, I think Wally allowed us to do our job. And uh, Remind me what year it was that you took that position, competition director. Well, Jack Hart was my original boss. And Jack was, he was the boss. And he wound up. I believe it was 72 with a carotid artery issue. And he had, in essence, a major stroke. And this was right before the, we didn't call it the US, the Nationals at Indy. And, and Hart went down for the count. And Wally comes to me, he says, all right. And I've only been with him since 69, okay, this is only like three years. And I'm kind of working my way into this role because we've got all the, the original division directors I mean, they had their own little areas within HRA, and they were powerful. I mean, and they ran, and I was just this young kid from California that's somehow getting in the middle of all this, and there was some resentment to that. Um, it took me a while to work my way through that. In the end, it worked out fine. I wound up getting along fine with these guys. But when, at the 72 Nationals, all of a sudden, Wally says, you're, you're the guy. You're in charge of this thing. I mean, this is the biggest race in drag racing that I got to run. Now, there's other people running. I'm, I mean, you know, I don't pretend to run every aspect of it, but you're the event director. You're the guy that's got to see that this all... And, um, and you're 32? I've been 32 years old, yeah. yeah. And, um, and we got through it. And um, Hart never totally recovered. So it wasn't long after that that I pretty well assumed that role of running the races. Jack lasted a while longer. He, he, he was only 55 years old when he died on Thanksgiving Day in 1977. Uh, brilliant guy. I mean, Jack Hart, in my mind, did as much to move NHRA along as anybody. And he set up excellent insurance program, excellent safety program. He had a lot to do with SEMA, you know, coming along with uh, guidelines and policies and, you know, specifications. And um, the employees of NHR, I mean, we had a nice package. We had good insurance. We had a nice retirement program. At heart took care of all that. And um, I really, it, you know, life was kind of unfair to him towards the end. and. Um, he, um, he only had one daughter and she was killed in a motorcycle accident and that really 
I think, did as much to kill him as uh, anything else. It just devastated him. And um, like I say, he was only 55. He, he always seemed a lot older. But, uh, but anyway, I assumed a lot of the stuff that Jack was doing. And then I continued to actually be the event director until 1998 when I, I finally uh, we were doing the museum and I could see that that's kind of what I'd like to do. And I told them, you know, I think I've had enough of this. You know, you, you get wore out traveling. And Christ, I've been doing it over 25 years, probably conducted 350 national events, you know, in that time frame. And I think you've done a pretty good job at it. And um, so we transitioned out and I wound up, you know, moving over to the museum and kind of phased out my career over there. I want to back up just, in, just to ask you about, because just as you're getting solid in your position with the NHRA, this is when Garlitz is developing the rear engine car. And for somebody who was around that, um, what are your memories of that and, and what that meant well, at that time? I mean, that was obviously a, a big step. I mean, these cars were unsafe. I mean, it wasn't that, the only reason Garlitz came up with that rear engine car was obviously that clutch explosion, yeah. that Lions, that uh, transmission explosion. It sawed off half of his foot, and he got serious about doing a rear-engine car. I mean, there had been a lot of rear-engine cars prior to that, and it's always on the internet chatter about Garlitz, you know, developing or you know the rear-engine car. Well, he I mean, he really didn't. I mean, he came up with a successful one, and uh, yeah, I um, mean, the Sidewinder was a rear-engine well, car. I mean, there, I mean, there was a lot tons of them. Yeah. Speed Sports Special at one time was the fastest car in drag racing. I mean, it's a rear engine car, it's a yeah. monster. But anyway, the, but you could see, I mean, we've gone through some pretty ugly incidents. The John Mulligan incident, you know, uh, when Mulligan, when he was killed at the race I got hired at in 1969 at Indy. Uh, Jim Paoli had a horrible clutch explosion at Indy in 69. It sent spectators to the hospital. Those cars, we're getting a lot scarier. And, and when, when those incidents happen, for somebody who's working for the NHRA, yeah. it had to really rattle you. And did it? Did you ever think, my God, this stuff like this will end all this if well, we don't? You worried about it. On the other hand, I, I don't know. We hadn't really got to the lawsuit um, era where people would sue you for anything. It seemed like if you had an accident, you know, the hospital bills would be paid, there might be whatever the insurance covered, but you didn't really fear getting sued, you know? And later on, that's, that all changed, I think, just in society in general, where all, something bad goes wrong, by God, somebody's gotta be to blame for this, you know? And so that, that changed a lot within the sport, in that, part of it, but uh, it was pretty obvious that the front engine top fuel car, as much as I love them, and the style and grace of the, when they really, you know, the full bodied Tom Hanna, Don Long, I mean. Uh, Works of art. There was so much uh, class to those cars, mm -hmm. but they were pretty dangerous, you know. I mean, you're sitting right there, that motor's right in front of you. A lot of guys got hurt bad, a lot of guys got killed. I think that um, 
it had to happen, you know, to come up with another thing. And Garlitz did it. I mean, he won with that car, and it didn't take long to totally revolutionize thing. The front engine top fuel car it went away pretty quick, you know, and it didn't show back up again until we got into the nostalgia stuff, you know, probably 30 years later. But um, it um, it was a major development. I mean, it, you got to give Garlitz credit whether or not he. I think maybe Swingle had more to do with making the car work than Garlitz did, you know, mm. with some advice from some other guys, Patty Foster. A lot of people have got their fingerprints on making the rear engine car work, but uh, it didn't take long for total transition. And it definitely showed up in the safety records. Uh, mm -hmm. um, well, I, re I really want to hear about the kind of the conversation that started around the NHRA museum, the Wally Parks Museum, and how that, how that was hatched and what, what you have to say about that. Well, Because that to me seems like a very, that's an important point in the, it, it in, is where I, people finally recognize that, you know what, we need a, we need a place, it's time right. to honor this stuff. I had been pushing Parks for some time about NHRA needs to have a museum. And this is prior to Don Garlitz opening up his museum. But it was always a back burner kind of a thing. And Wally, a couple of times, would, Dick Wells was involved with NHRA, and he was kind of Wally's guy in a lot of these issues. And um, a couple of times, Wally would ask Dick to go out with the industry and try to come up with money for a big museum, and they had visions of opening up, finding an old white front store, an old, and, and opening up with a big museum. Well, it never happened. I mean, every time we went through that exercise, <clears throat> they'd get one or two letters, well, we're interested, but not enough to do anything. Well, this conversation must have been happening as early as the 1980s. This then. was probably in the 80s, yeah. Yeah, and, because uh, Garland's I mean, NHRA, opened... You know, NHRA, you go back to the early 50s, but we're now we're talking we got a history now of 20, 30 years or so yeah. that I think a museum is only a natural kind of a desire to have something like that. And, um, and Garlitz, in the meantime, opened his museum. And yeah, he, you know, around he, 90 or so, 1990? I think maybe early 90s, maybe even late 80s. I'm not, I'm not yeah. sure when he opened his place up. But, it, I mean, definitely by the early 90s because that's when the drag racing hall of fame started and that came along a little after the museum had opened up but um and it's garlis has done a good job down there i mean he it's more industrial as far as the presentations but god he's got a ton of history in those places and, um, and a lot of it got away from nhra there's cars down there that truly belong out here i mean the <laughs> Gene Mooneyham's coupe belongs here. It doesn't belong in Florida. And I can go through a few other cars. But Garlitz did it. I give him full credit. He made it happen. He did it on his own. But we still needed a museum. I mean, NHRA started in California, and I finally talked him into If we can't do a museum, let us, because things were kind of being becoming available. Guys were restoring a few cars. There were artifacts, there was artwork. Uh, so I talked to NHRA into letting me 
lease a little 1,500 square foot building right across from the Fairplex. And I hired a guy named John Zenda, who uh, was an old drag racer, a real interesting character in his own, movie actor who was out of work, to come to work for us. And NHRA at that time seemed like they had a little money on the side to do other things. You know, they had a little involvement in international racing activity. Um, they weren't just solely focused on the production of national events. They were doing things I think that a sanctioning body needs to do. And um, so they let me rent this little 1,500 square foot place. Um, Art Chrisman let us have one of his cars. I, I, I think we even had the Challenger in there for a while. We couldn't put many cars in there. I mean, it's just a little small place. But we called it historical services. We didn't even call it a museum. And um, that's really how it got started. And we expanded it once, got a few more cars. And then the Hot Rod Reunion came along. And I had a lot to do with that. And I, when we did it, I, I made a deal with the management of NHRA that if the reunion makes any money, that money needs to go into the museum. So, and it still boy, does. Boy, is that an important thing well, that that... It, it still, in theory, does. <laughs> okay. uh <-huh. laughs> um, but, um, and then we got through a sad event. The guy that was the administrator of the LA County Fair was a fellow named Ralph Hines. And he was at the junior drag races at Pomona one day and dropped dead from a heart attack. And um, they hired a guy to take his place, a guy named Jim Henwood. And when Henwood, he came from Illinois, was familiarizing himself with this new role of his at the Fairplex, kind of stumbled into our little historical services, which was right across, again, right across the street from the, the drag strip tower there. And basically, what are you guys doing here? Well, someday we would like to have a museum. And, well, next thing, we need to get you over at the fair. I mean, so he took that ball, and the next thing, we're going around to different buildings. At first, they were going to try to put us in one of the agricultural buildings, at, almost an old horse barn that was over there, and that wasn't going to work. And then we wound up with building 3A, where it is today. At that time, it was kind of tucked off in the corner. It, Weeds were growing around it. It was almost non-functional. They only used it during the fair for home arts. I mean, women's sewing and knitting and, and it once a year. And well, what about this building? And then more we got to look into this thing. This thing would work. I mean, she's about a 29,000 square foot building that was built in 1939 under the Roosevelt WPA project. And uh, it had some possibilities. And, um, so we, we looked at it, and NHRA had enough money at the time to let us, so, I mean, that's it. We, we opened up that museum, I think, uh, I think 98 was the year we opened it up. It took about a year or so to, I mean, it was a shoestring operation. I remember going to a, a lighting contractor, you know, as far as this kind of museum lighting. She was like $200,000 to put the kind of lighting in. That This is not going to work, so we just went and bought fixtures and hired an electrician, so for 20 grand, and we had good lighting. I mean, it was okay, but uh, Mike Jones, who had been the original manager of Orange County Raceway, 
was in the interior decorating business, and he gave us a hand as far as some of the, the layout and stuff we did. We had a lot of help putting that thing together uh, on an absolute shoestring, and uh, I'm proud of the way it came out. You know, it's not the not the greatest location for a museum. You don't get a lot of drive-by traffic, but the Fairplex, the Henwood fellow wanted to do something to make a statement about, you know, uh, improving the Fairplex with new things, and they held that museum up as a, a big example for a long time of things that could be done out there. And I still, even though I don't have much of a relationship with NHR anymore, um, I got a soft spot for that museum because I got my fingerprints all over that damn thing, and um, as I do with the reunions. Did you staff it initially? As far as the the hiring of the staff, for yeah, the I mean there wasn't much there. They, uh, you know, I I had retired out of my role with the racing part with NHRA, and I became the director, the first director of the museum, and I had a small office there. So you did all the hiring then, I uh, guess. But pretty didn't much, you? yeah. Although yeah. a couple other, it looked like NHRA was trying to phase out a couple other people from <clears throat> the Glendora operation. So Wally's. Uh, Secretary at the time was a gal named Marilyn Lackman, moved her over to the museum. Brian Tracy, we moved him over there as a developmental guy. So it kind of looked like management, the new management at NHRA was trying to maybe take some of the old school guys out and mm. deposit them over here. Uh -huh. um, but at the time, we were all ready to do something different. And I did that for about five years, and then I decided I just wanted out. You know, it's time to just retire altogether, and I did that, I think it was about 2003, I think is when I I just retired, and I stayed on as a consultant, and that's when um, they hired another director, a guy named Sam Jackson, and they'd gone through two or three directors since then, but um, I'd hired Greg Sharp. Actually, I hired Greg Sharp uh, even before the museum opened, and he worked at Historical Services for a while, and a great, great curator. Greg is just a Wealth of knowledge. You bet. Yeah. And um, uh, so that was one of the better things I did was to get him, get Greg involved. So he was part of the original team. He was part of the original team at the museum. He came from historical services. I mean, he was the only guy. John Zenda had died from pancreatic cancer back about 1993. And so, um, you know, when he passed, uh, we needed someone else. And Greg had retired. Uh, he's an L.A. motorcycle cop. And he had retired from the police force. And um, I think Carl Olson introduced me. They went to high school together. And, um, and Greg was ready to do something like that. So he was a natural. I mean, he's got more knowledge of this stuff than I begin to have. And, um, and, so he, and he's still there, you know, it's, yeah. and it's great. Well, one thing about the museum, isn't it true that um, when the NHRA offices were on Riverside in North Hollywood, right by Barris's shop, I believe, right right down the street. Um, you guys took in a donation, a Dragmaster yeah, Jim, Jim, Yeah, Jim Nelson and Dode Martin, the car that they won, top eliminator, the top gas eliminator at the Winter Nationals, um, just out of the blue, they had restored that car and gave it to NHRA. I, I know, probably just to get rid of it and get it out of the way. So that building had like an atrium uh, you know, kind of an open area. And so uh, it sat there for a long time. I mean, we probably got that car 
Jesus, I don't know, maybe in the early 80s. I mean, it sat in that building for a long time. So it was the first you know, artifact, I guess you'll call it, that, that we got. And of course, when we opened up the historical services, that car went out there and it's still in the museum today. Yeah. And, um, but uh, those guys were great, Jim and Jim and Dode, you know, and they went ahead and replicated a couple other cars. But that is the original car. That's the car that won Pomona in 1964. But um, it, um, it, you know, at the time we didn't have any idea that that was. That that was the beginning of a, of a museum, yeah. You know, there were artifacts. Wally had some stuff and we all had might be posters or artwork or who knows what that kind of fit in there. But uh, it was easy to fill the museum up. There's a lot of guys that were anxious to put their cars in there on loan. And we were able to find a couple of cars and have them restored. The Melvin Heath uh, car that won the 1956 Nationals, the Albertson Olds car that won the 60 Nationals. We were able to locate those and have them restored. Um, the Calvin Rice car that won the 55 Nationals, we had it replicated. Um, but most of the cars in there, and even probably to this day, are on donation. Uh, the museum, I think, may own a third of the cars. Some of them have been donated for tax purposes, and that's kind of increased. But the vast majority of them, I think, are still their own loan. Hmm. Okay, so let's talk about the Hot Rod reunion and and how that was hatched. Well, a, re a reunion's not a novel idea. I mean, I mean, there's been any kind of reunions, whether it's school or military or, and there had been a couple of independent reunions. I remember going to an Irwindale reunion out at Palmdale that a guy had put on, and I think a couple other individual drag race reunions. And uh, so Joe Paisano was a big name in, this, you know, Vinolia Pistons, Paisano, just a huge uh, player in, in drag racing. And he, he died from a heart attack up at Denver at the Mile High Nationals. And his funeral was at Rose Hill Cemetery. And I saw people at the funeral I hadn't seen in a long time, and guys that there's just no place to cross paths with them anymore, you know, other than funerals. And I, Said, you know, I went back to NHRA and I said, you know, and at that time, NHRA was actually operating the, the track at Bakersfield. I mean, they had taken over the master lease. There was a time where NHRA wasn't sure Pomona was going to survive. And so when the lease for the track at Bakersfield became available from the Kern County Airport, NHRA actually took over that lease and operated the racetrack. A fellow named Warren Smith was running the track. So it was easy for me to go and say, I'd like to do this event at Bakersfield because you got all this history at Bakersfield anyway from all the March meet stuff. And we don't have to deal with an outside. We, we don't need to go rent a track. I mean, it's our track. It's pretty easy to do. And so um, I said, I'd like to try to organize this reunion with a lot of help. Again, I didn't do it all by myself. There was, but the way it worked out, it was at the end of the NHRA season. And so we had some, a little bit of time to do something. I think the first reunion was in November. And uh, so one thing led to another. Um, we started gathering 
list of names and just kind of a network thing and got the word out that we're going to have this California hot rod reunion at Bakersfield in November. Well, it was a real success. I mean, NHRA, had, we had gotten some good time through the NHRA today, the little half-hour program that was going on at that time. We were getting good support from National Dragster. And I think there was just, in general, a longing among the community to do something like this. And, um, I mean, one of the things we said was we were only going to do this once. I mean, we kind of made a deal about that, but that's the truth. We had no, we had no idea that there would be a second one or, you know, it was just a chance to get everybody together. The original concept on the first reunion, if we could get a thousand people to pay $35, that would cover our nut. And we, we were going to rent a big tent and literally everybody at that first reunion was supposed to go in this big tent for whatever presentations we, well, that, that wasn't gonna work because that thousand people, I mean, I think we had about 5,000 people up there that first year, which, uh, I mean, it was great. I mean, an obvious success. There was, it was only a two day event then, just Saturday and Sunday. So it, it was, you know, we probably struggled to get through it, you know, I think learning, but, one of the, we started talking about the next one, and there were a lot of guys said you only need to do this every five years. You'll kill it if you do it every year. And Jimmy Nix, who was a big name top fuel racer back then, said, "No, nah, you guys need to do this every year because there's a lot of people here that won't be here in five years." And he was one of them. He wasn't there five years later. He got killed in an accident down at Dallas. So. Um, we obviously started doing it every year and the things continued to grow and, and do very well and generated a lot of money for that museum. Without that hot rod reunion, that museum would have a padlock on it. There's no way that museum can exist without the income from those hot rod reunions. And, um, which was great, I mean, at that, that time. It, later on, NHRA decided to do things differently than I Cared. I want to talk about okay. that. But I want to make sure we recognize that you said you didn't do this on your own. You didn't hatch it on your own. Who was the team? Who, well, who were... mostly NHRA people that worked there full time. Bernie and Phyllis Partridge, the division director at the time. Mike Lewis, who now works for Don Schumacher, is, uh, he, I'm, I can't even remember his role at the time. Some of the gals in the office were there. Uh, George Phillips worked for National Dragster at the time. Quite a few people, I mean, they wanted to do this. They wanted mm -hmm. to get involved. And I pretty much coordinated those efforts. But, uh, uh, and of course, Greg Sharp was a big part of it, too. I was going to say, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll take that back a little bit. Um, Greg became a part of it. John Zenda was, when we did the first reunion, we had um, done the NHRA, the original safety safari trailer and the old station wagon. Yep. Zenda actually drove that around to almost every car show, even took it to Bonneville handing out flyers for the first reunion. So he was still on the job then. So Greg actually came in after maybe the second or third reunion. Zenda died, I think, in 93, which is only, he was only around, I think, for one or two of the reunions. So Greg wasn't part of the original. Yeah, but um, Joe Martinez was the 
artist at NHRA at the time. And uh, John Juduga was a great writer artist that worked at National Drags where he was involved. And I'm gonna miss some names that I'm gonna regret. Um, but it was probably 10 to 15 people that one way or other contributed to making that thing happen, you know, processing the tickets, uh, doing whatever it took. Wally was real active in it. I mean, he paid his $35 just like everybody else. In the, mm. um, but we could see right away we had something a lot bigger than we originally had anticipated. But it was a good thing because that really put the museum on some pretty solid yeah. footing, you know, when that, when that came around. But, um, it must have felt a little like deja vu for you professionally, because here you are like entering into something and all of a sudden it's taken off, like all over again, here we go again. Yeah. <laughs> I've got to hang on to this thing and it, as it's kind of- Well, it, it was that. And it growing and growing well, and growing. It, we stumbled, we tried to do the first hot rod reunion. We called it the Midwest hot rod reunion. We did one in Columbus, Ohio, well, a dismal failure. And, I, I remember mean, that one. Yeah, I lived it, back it, there then. Yeah, <laughs> it just did not work. Um, I think we assumed it was going to work and probably didn't. Maybe we didn't work hard enough. But I think having that event at a national event site just doesn't work. I mm. think it needs to be... At Bowling you, you Green a, or something else. Yes. You need to be a big fish in a little pond. And Bakersfield had that, it had that history. It had that mystique to it. I mean, you were going back to Mecca to go to, you know, Formoso, and Columbus just didn't have it. Yeah. And uh, it, it, it failed, and we, we didn't do a second one because it lost money, and the museum can't, can't afford to lose money. We tried to do one in New England. Uh, we did three years up there, and they were nice events. They sure were. I went to those, and they okay. were great. Great events. But they just simply didn't generate enough people yeah. to make it worthwhile. And there's a few other factors involved, but uh, the museum cannot afford to lose money in that kind of, yeah. you know. Uh, and Bowling Green has always worked, hasn't it? Bowling Green worked great. And uh, when we, we tried the one at Columbus, and uh, there, there was that overriding desire to do another one somewhere else in the country, and Bowling Green is perfect because, again, it's an old historic track. Yeah. The wooden got, stands it, and the whole thing, got it's everything great. everything going for it. And uh, of course, it did just fine, and yeah. uh, it still will do fine, you know. And it, it really is uh, much more of a street rod event too. We were getting fifteen hundred street rods, you know, as part of that whole show. And uh, but it, it worked. Uh, it worked very well. And uh, and maybe the you know the experience in New England was disappointing. I mean, I was really saddened that that didn't work out because there was a lot of history there. But at the same time, it's at a track that had a national event, and they had a lot of their own nostalgia activity. I just don't think we hmm. carved out a unique enough event to really make an impact. We were just, you know, following the national event. You know, it, uh, it, it just it, bottom line, it didn't work. So yeah. three years we tried it and. Move on. It was know. neat, though. It was a oh, neat yeah, event. Great events. And boy, you talk about enthusiasm. Those guys, you know, we're so spoiled here. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and just talking to those racers in New England, who they don't get stuff like that as, no. as much as we do. And and uh, it's a shame. That was we, fun. You know, we, we just needed more people, to, yeah. casual spectators, to pay the bills. Yeah. You know, we had the hardcore support was there. I mean, we had that.
Well, there you go. There you have it. Another great episode of the Rodcast brought to you by the American Hot Rod Foundation. Extra special thanks to our guest Steve Gibbs for putting in the time and sitting down with us for this three-part, yes, three-part series that will wrap up with our next broadcast where Steve might just... He might just pull back the curtain even more on his time with the NHRA and just what went on during those last few years with the hot rod reunions and other related topics. So all I can say is uh, you don't want to miss it. Special thanks, as always, to our announcer, Larry Babb, and all the staff here at Speed Shop Sound Studios in North Hollywood, California. As always, our PR person is Angela Helton with social media management coming from Crystal Hayes. Technical assistance from Eric Curtis, Cole Kuntz, and Katie Sloan. And as always, all Rodcast music is written and performed by me. Special thanks to our archivist and historian, Jim Miller, always doing the heavy lifting and keeping us honest. The American Hot Rod Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit and was founded in 2002 by Steve and Carol Mamishian for the sole purpose of documenting and preserving the history of hot rodding. Without their generosity and passion for this work, none of this would be possible. As always, if you'd like to learn more about the foundation, just hop on over to our website, ahrf.com. You can support us there by checking out our merchandise, making a donation, or better yet, better yet, sign up and become a supporting member of the American Hot Rod Foundation. Among a whole lot of other perks, you'll get to enjoy the video versions of many of the Rodcasts that you're listening to here. So highly recommend you check that out also you can follow us across all our social media channels facebook instagram twitter where we'll provide you with daily posts consisting of historical images pulled from the foundation archives as well as information on future episodes of the broadcast so once again huge thanks to the great steve gibbs for his generosity for being such a great friend of the american hot rod foundation and for everything he has contributed to our great American pastime. And with that, we thank you for tuning in. We hope you've enjoyed this episode, and we hope you'll join us next time right here for another great episode of The Rodcast. Thanks for listening to another great episode of the Rodcast, brought to you by the American Hot Rod Foundation.